Well, good morning, church. It is a <clears throat> excuse me. It is a joy and a pleasure and an honor to be here with you again. Uh, in, in this role as together now we get to turn in our worship and worship together through marveling at the beauty of God's word. So I would just invite you, let us again go to our Lord in prayer as we enter into this time of worship through God's word. Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you for the truths that have already been proclaimed about you this morning. God, thank you that you are the God who is the same. You are the God who never changes. God, we thank you for the hope that we have because you stepped off of your throne and into this world. God, we thank you for the incarnation. Lord, now as we continue to worship through hearing your word this morning, God, I pray that it would just go down into the deepest parts of us, that your spirit would, would work in our hearts and our minds and in the secret places, God, so that every bit of us would be laid bare before your word. But God, let us do it with joy and let our hearts echo the psalmist who writes, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. So God, that is our prayer this morning. As we come to a time to worship through your word preached, open our eyes that we might hold wonderful things from your law. And we ask it in the good and strong and only name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, church. As we kick off this Advent season, I wanted to talk this morning about the idea of hope. This idea of hope, this is a word that gets used a lot. It has kind of taken on many definitions through our culture and through different aspects of life. But what is this word hope? And this morning, what we're going to come to see is that hope is not just this idea, but hope is a person. Hope has a name, and hope is in Christ alone. And so as we do that, I would invite you to open with me and turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6 this morning. We're going to root ourselves there, and, uh, and we're going to use that as our time of working through this passage. We're going to spend some time this morning. We need to do three main things. We need to understand what this passage in Hebrews means in the scope of the entire Bible so that we can understand what it means within the book of Hebrews, so that we can understand what it means and how to apply it to our lives as Christians today. So that is our goal for today, is to dig through the truths that are here and get to Jesus. Hebrews chapter 6, starting verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham... Since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself, I will indeed bless you and will greatly multiply you. Waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and for them a confirming oath ends every dispute. Because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to he guaranteed it with an oath, so that through unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. 
Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. We're going to get to the Melchizedekian priesthood in a little bit. But before we jump into this, I want to tell you guys a story to kind of give you a visual of, of part of the idea of what's going on here. When I was uh, between my junior year and senior year of high school, we moved from Southern California to a small town in central Arkansas. Yeah, you want to talk about culture shock, right? I went from a town, of a, a city of about three quarters of a million people to a town of about 17,000. I went from a city that had eight high schools to a town that had one, and it served three different cities. And so everything kind of about my life changed. And with that came new interests and new hobbies, because all of a sudden the things that were uh, pastimes that in Southern California were not really what people were into in small town central Arkansas. And so I began to do things like uh, go hunting, and spend more time outdoors, which I'm thankful to God for, because now those are the things that I love doing. But I remember one specific incident where uh, I was with a group of my friends from school, and they had grown up in this. This is what they knew. This is what they did. It was just who they were, and it was very much not who I was, but I was trying to fake it till I could make it. And so I was out with them one day, and they said, hey, we are going to, uh, we're going to go hang a new deer blind that we built. And they built a nice big box blind, and I was like, I'm in brother, what? your truck or my Camry, I'll take your truck, um, right? So, but I was in. I wanted to fit in. I wanted to, to be a part of what was going on. And so I remember specifically this time, though, because it was one of the few times that I have actually, like, questioned uh, some decisions that I've made and, and maybe a little bit of fear for my own life. And so uh, they think, hey, here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're gonna, they're explaining to me how this process is going to go, and they say, TJ, when we get there, what we're going to do is uh, there's going uh, to be four of us, and we're going to lift it up, one on each corner, and we're going to put it against the tree, but then we're going to have to like get it bolted in really quick. So what we're going to do is we're going to lift it up, and then you're going to stand on one side and hold it because you're the only one who has no idea what you're doing, so maybe you can at least hold something. Well, okay. And so then I start thinking, I'm like, guys, isn't that going to be really heavy? Like, how am I going to hold that whole side up while you bolt the other side to a tree? Like, oh, don't worry. We're going to tie some anchor lines. Oh, okay. So in my, in my mind, I'm thinking, we're going to have some, like, steel ratcheting cables, and, you know, everything's going to be very secure and strong. And we get there, my buddy Daniel goes to the back of his truck and his toolbox, and he opens up, and he pulls out the most decrepit old piece of the horsehair rope that I have ever seen in my life. And this is the anchor line now that is going to support this deer blind as I'm holding it on one side and they have it tied off on the other. And so as I'm standing there, probably against my better judgment, I'm thinking, man, I hold that anchor holds. Because if it doesn't, I'm going to get crushed. Luckily, by the sheer mercy of God, that rope did not snap, and I'm alive. So, spoiler, I didn't die. But this idea of the anchor, and the anchor holding, and putting our trust in the anchor, in that moment, I had a lot of hope that I was placing in the strength of that anchor rope. 
as I look as this building is now above my head and I'm standing here holding it, I'm trusting stock in what's going on there. And so, as we're doing this, the anchor holds. This is the same idea that the author of Hebrews is bringing to us. He says, we have a hope that anchors our soul. This morning, that's what we're going to look at. That, that anchor that, that doesn't give way, that anchor that holds, that anchor that we can rely on, that we can hope in, that we can trust in. And so there's, there's four things that I want us to see here in Hebrews uh, 6 through 20. And the first of those is that we have a secure hope. We have a secure hope. Look with me, starting in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will indeed bless you greatly. I will indeed bless you, and I will greatly multiply you. This is pointing back, this is a direct quote from Genesis chapter 22, when God is making a promise to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, that his children would be like the stars of the sky or the sand of the sea, that they would be so innumerable that they could never be counted, right? This is literally, we we teach our kids this song, right? Who's ever sang that song? Father Abraham had many sons, right? Sad Father Abraham. All right. I love it, but we ain't got time for it this morning. So, right, but this is an idea that we hold to in Scripture. This is what the promise to Abraham starts off and kind of kicks off this idea of the covenant promise that's going to flow all the way through the rest of the Bible. This, this idea of the covenant, this special promise that God makes with his people that becomes everything to them. It becomes their identity. It becomes the thing that they hope in. It becomes the thing that they trust in and the thing that they rely on through every different thing that this world throws at them. That is a big idea. That is a lot of trust, a lot of hope to have in something. Why? Why were they able to trust in that promise? Why were they able to trust in that promise? And it's because of what it says there in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. The promise that God made to Abraham, the covenant that God made with his people on that day in Genesis 22 is rooted and secured in the very nature and person of God himself. A promise is only good as its guarantor. Are you going to trust someone who makes a promise to you? Are you going to believe a promise from someone who you do not trust or who has not proven themselves to you? No. A promise is only as good as its guarantor, right? For We saw this even in our own financial system here in the United States, that for a long time when we were on the gold standard, the dollar bill that you carried in your wallet was only as good as the gold reserve that it represented in Fort Knox. The promise, in fact, a lot of times were referred to as a promissory note, saying I'm giving you something that represents real value held somewhere else. That's the idea Here in Hebrews 6, 
The promise is secure. The hope is secure. We can trust in the promise. We can trust in the covenant because it is rooted in God himself. And the author of Hebrews goes on and he affirms this in verse 15. He says, the Lord swears by himself that he will bless Abraham. He will greatly multiply him. And then in verse 15, he says, so there's without a shadow of a doubt, he says, and so after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. What the author of Hebrews is saying here is that a promise from God is like money in the bank. You can trust it. It is good. It is insured in the very character and nature of God himself. And if that weren't enough for us to get that idea, the author of Hebrews then explicitly says it. Why? Because God cannot lie. God God is not truthful. God is truth. He is the truth from which all truth flows. God cannot lie because he is truth. If God says it, it is true. It is his nature. It is his character. And so when God tells Abraham, when God gives him this promise, that one day, one day, Abraham, I know right now you have no offspring. You have no heir. You have no one to pass along your family name to. But one day, One day, Abraham, nations will come from you. One day, your descendants will be like the stars of the sky. Now think about that for a second. I live up in Winston. We have a lot of city light. I look up, I don't see that many stars. Anyone ever been up in the mountains and looked up? This hit me really hard when Karsh and I were on our honeymoon. We went on a cruise and we're out in the middle of the ocean. And one night, really late, I just went out on our little balcony and looked up. More stars than I'd ever seen in my life. (laughs) Sorry, I heard the front row. That was, quote, another reason to go on a cruise. (laughs) I, I support you. More stars than I'd ever seen in my life, and it hit me. This is the kind of promise that God was giving to Abraham. The kind of promise who a man with no offspring is now going to have more than he could ever number. More than he could ever dream of. But he was able to trust in it, even though it seemed completely impossible. Because God had said it to him. Because it was rooted in the nature of who God was So church, when we talk about the hope that we have, the hope that comes to us, the the anchor of our soul that we'll get to in a minute, that hope that the author of Hebrews here is talking about that each one of us shares as the people of God, it is a secure hope. It's not like that frail little rope that I was worried about snapping in that building crushing me. It It is the strong chain of an anchor that will never be broken that will withstand anything and will hold fast and hold secure. We have a secure hope. We have an unchanging and unwavering hope because it comes from an unchanging and unwavering God. So not only do we have a secure hope, but we also have a specific hope. We have a specific hope. Hope is one of those ideas that culture has kind of grabbed onto and run with, right? You, just, you know, you just got to have hope. 
the theme of many a Disney movie. You've just got to hope. You've got to hope in whatever. The world will tell you a million things to hope in. You've got to hope in your bank account. You've got to hope in your retirement plan. You've got to hope in that 401k. You've got to hope in the stock market. You've got to hope in whatever. You've got to just hope in yourself and believe in yourself. But here's the deal. All of those things are a torn up, trashy piece of rope that could snap at any moment. We don't hope in that. We hope in the anchor. We hope in the chain. We have a specific hope. And so as the author of Hebrews gets down and changes in verse 19 to start talking about this hope, or even before that really, in verse 17 he says, because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise. So now we're going past Abraham to future generations, the heirs of the promise that God is making. He says, I am making this promise, and I want you to understand how unchangeable it is, He guarantees it with an oath on himself. It's a specific thing that God is promising because he is making a specific oath to Abraham and his people. But why? At the end of verse 18, he gives us the the reason. Why? So that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. So that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope that is set before us. Why is the, Hebrew, the author of Hebrews writing these things? So that in 2022... The people of God can gather at 1370 Arnold Road on Sunday, December 27th at 1015 in the morning and can be encouraged by the promise of God that was made for them. So that we who have fled to refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. It is the hope set before us. It is a specific hope. In fact, he makes this even, the author of Hebrews makes this even clearer in verse 19. He doesn't say, we have hope as an anchor for our soul. When times get bad, you can make it through because you can just have a hope. Sorry to the great theologian John Bon Jovi. But we are in fact not living on a prayer. We are clinging to a hope. The hope. In verse 19, we have this hope as an anchor for our soul. We have this hope that keeps us rooted. We have this hope that is secure and that we can trust in. Not a hope, not any hope, but this hope. As the author of Ecclesiastes would say, everything else is vanity. We have this So the obvious question that comes up at this time is, what is this hope? What is the hope that the author of Hebrews is talking about here? He's referenced the fact that God's going to multiply Abraham, and the promise was that he would multiply Abraham, and that he would have many descendants. What good does that do for me? 
I'm not Jewish. I'm not a descendant of Abraham. What good, how does this promise to Abraham give me hope? Because if we go back to its original context in Genesis, it does not stop there. If we go back to Genesis 22, we see the full covenant laid out with Abraham. And God says, I will bless you and I will multiply your descendants beyond the sands of the sea and the stars of the sky. Here it is, church. And through you, Every family of the earth will be blessed. Every family of the earth will be blessed. This, this idea of family in the Old Testament, right? As, as God is talking to a, a rather new creation here, as God is talking to, to Abraham, um, you know, we, we date this maybe around the year 2400 B.C., um, that Abraham kind of does all of this. Um, so as, as God is, is talking to Abraham, and he's making this promise, he's, he's looking to the future and he's saying, Abraham, this is not just about families, right? When we think about different families, we think about, you know, the, the Tituses or the Prescotts or the, right? And we just think about these little family units. One way that we can understand the promise of God is that he is saying, I will multiply your offspring. I will bless you and through you, all of the nations, all of the peoples, all of everybody on the earth will be blessed. This is not a Jewish promise. This is not an Abrahamic promise. But when we look back at the full picture of Scripture and the redeeming work of what Christ has done, this is a worldwide, global, and time-altering promise. This is for all people through all time in all places. We can hold to this hope because it is for us. Because here is where this promise is rooted. It's rooted in another promise. This promise to Abraham is rooted in one of the first promises that we see in Scripture. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. After Adam and Eve have fallen, Pastor Paul has been preaching through his foundation series. He spoke about this a couple weeks ago. After Adam and Eve have fallen into sin, God comes to them. And he explains to them what the penalties of their sin are. But he doesn't leave them there. Our good and merciful God gives them a promise that one day, one day, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. How is every family of the earth blessed? The curse of sin is undone. Through the seed of the woman, which is also the seed of Abraham, which becomes the seed of David, which leads to Christmas and to Jesus. Why do we light this candle? Why do we celebrate the Advent season? Why do we celebrate the fact that God is now with us? It is because it is the grand fulfillment of the biggest promise ever made. That in Genesis 3, God would say that one day, all of this will be undone by the seed of the woman. That I will come and I will fix it. And through that, every nation, every people on earth will be blessed because I will undo the curse of sin. We have a specific hope, church, and that hope is the gospel. 
we hope in the gospel. This good news, this, this gospel message that has flown from page to page in scripture. One uh, theologian has said that the gospel is the scarlet thread that ties every piece of scripture together. This idea that starts in the garden and comes to reality in Christ. And will one day even be made more perfect as God consummates his work in the new heavens and the new earth. This is our hope. When the, when the author of Hebrews writes these words, you can substitute that word this for the gospel. In verse 19, we have the gospel as an anchor for our soul because of what Christ has done. Guys, it is always, forever, has been, is, and will be about Jesus. See, we do this thing in the church where we, a real disservice to ourselves, where we treat the gospel like it is just some initiatory knowledge to get into the people of God. And we treat the gospel almost as this, just this incantation, this story that we have to believe if we're going to be part of the church. If we're going to find salvation, we have to believe the gospel. But guys, the gospel is not the doorway into the church. The gospel is the very air that we breathe that sustains us moment by moment, day by day. We do not ever graduate from the truth of the gospel we do not ever graduate from the hope of the gospel to deeper theological matters. But every morning, every day, hour by hour, moment by moment, we need to wash ourselves anew in the truth of the gospel because only in the gospel is the hope of Christ found. Only in the gospel is there any hope to be found. There is the gospel and there is everything else that is vanity. Every kingdom of this world will fall, but the mountain of God will stand. And so we have a specific hope, church. Our hope is the gospel. Nothing else. Not our theology, not our denominationalism, not our devout practice, not... It's the gospel, end of statement. It is the news of what Christ has done on our behalf. That he has given himself to pay the penalty of sin. We'll get into that in a minute. So we have a secure hope. We have a specific hope. And church, this morning we also have an anchoring hope. We have an anchoring hope. And so this is where we're going to start taking it from kind of these theological terms and understanding it practically in our lives. I love to fish uh, anywhere I can. And so for the last few years, we try and take at least one trip out to the coast and go fishing at the coast. And uh, we like to fish on the intercoastal waters there and um, near Southport. And one of the things that happens quite often is the giant ferry comes cruising across. And we're in a tiny little boat. And that ferry puts off some waves, puts off some wake behind it. 
I remember one time we were flounder fishing, and we were pretty close to the path of the ferry, and here, sure enough, here it came, and the guy that we were with just reached up and hit a button. And it shot two big poles down into the ground behind the boat to keep us anchored and keep us stable. Because when those waves came, we were fishing right next to this little rock wall that was there. And when those waves came, it was going to push us into those and it would have messed that boat up. So we had to anchor ourselves against the waves. Anyone who's ever been out on a boat, anyone who's ever been on a cruise, maybe future going on a cruise, knows that feeling. If you've ever watched the the TV show that was popular several years ago, Deadliest Catch on the Discovery Channel about guys up in Alaska catching crab, you see some of the storm, the videos of the storms that they're in, you see some of the waves that they face, and you're like, man, you're in this tiny little boat to scale, and 60, 70-foot waves. What in the world? But I don't think that we have to have any knowledge of being on a boat to understand this idea of the anchor in the waves. Because I don't think there's a person in here that hasn't felt like they've been tossed around and beaten up and battered by life. I don't think there's a person that walked through that door this morning that doesn't have something that's weighing heavy on their heart, that isn't facing something, that hasn't struggled throughout life with the effects of sin and how it breaks up God's goodness in this world. And so whether that's a broken family relationship, whether that's abuse that you've suffered at the hands of someone else in the past, whether that's issues of, of your, your own self and the way that you see yourself and, and your body and, and just whatever it could be, just depression or anxiety, facing a tough situation at, at work with a coworker, struggling, thinking about how you're going to provide for your family and feeling the pressures of that. There's not one of us in here who can say that we have never experienced those waves of life. I think we can all agree that life can beat you up at times. One of my favorite TV shows from the 90s offered this suggestion. Life's tough, get a helmet. I learned a lot from Boy Meets World. That's not one of them. Because what I see in Hebrews is that life's tough. Get an anchor. The waves are coming. The storm is coming. Many of us are experiencing the storm right now as we sit in these seats. As you watch online, you're already struggling and feeling these things. Anchor yourself in the hope of the gospel. When the wave seems too big, when it is piling up in front of you and you can't see the other side, trust in the gospel. Trust in the truth and the promise from Scripture that Christ has made a way. Jesus says, in this life you will face trials, but take heart. I have overcome the world. That is a promise he bought with his own blood on the cross that he now has victory over sin, over death, over hell, and all of the brokenness of this world so that his people can endure. When the waves mound up, 
when life gets tough, don't get, an, don't get a helmet. Hold fast to the anchor. Hold fast to the anchor. I once heard someone talking and telling of a missionary that they knew. We know, as Austin can give testimony to, many of our missionaries around the world face very, very difficult things. Things that we can't imagine. This past uh, Wednesday, we sent something out to everyone in the church asking that we take a moment that during this Thanksgiving season to stop and pray for our brothers and sisters in the persecuted church. Because guys, there are millions of Christians around the world, just like us, who could not walk into a place and joyfully worship in the open this morning. Because if they did, the government or other religious extremists would be right behind them to at best put them in jail and most likely take their life. Life is hard. The brokenness of sin is real. The waves get really big. But the joy that we have this morning is knowing that millions of our brothers and sisters around the world in the face of that persecution are joyfully gathering together to worship God because they understand his beauty, they see his worth, and no matter how big the waves get, their hope is anchored by the gospel. I heard of a missionary one time who said it this way. When you can't see the hand of God, you can always trust the heart of God. Life gets hard, and we struggle with things, and a lot of the times we don't see a way out. Whether it's an illness or an addiction or anything else. The waves seem like they are encircling us on all sides and there is no way out. And, and the cry of our heart is, God, what, what are you doing? Where are you in all of this? And we give ourselves over to despair. But church, what we are called to do as those who have run to, for refuge to Jesus is that we are to have strong encouragement in the promise of the gospel. No matter how bad it gets, we are to have strong encouragement in the thing that anchors us. If the anchor is strong enough, the anchor is big enough, the anchor will hold no matter how big the waves get. You're not going anywhere because you are anchored by something far bigger than yourself. So we have an anchoring hope. The gospel anchors us through life's storms. And then finally this morning, we have an eternal hope. We have an eternal hope. And this is where we get into that verse in verse 20. We have this hope, 19, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Amen. Amen. What did that say? 
right? Don't you just get really excited when you read about the Melchizedekian priesthood? <laughs> just something that gets you fired up? It does me, and I hope that by the end of the next few minutes, it will you too. Because here's what that means. Melchizedek is a person that we meet in Scripture early on. And as Abraham is coming back from a victorious battle, he's met by this man named Melchizedek. We have no background on Melchizedek. We have no information going forward on Melchizedek. We don't know his origin. We don't know anything except we know these things. His name is Melchizedek. He is high priest of God Almighty and king of Salem. That's what we know about Melchizedek. And he blesses Abraham. A couple things I want to point to about Melchizedek. Because when we think about Jesus being our high priest, we think, okay, but what does it mean for him to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek? Uh, Because Melchizedek had no priestly line. We read in Leviticus that the priests of the people of God came from the tribe of Levi, Aaron being the first high priest and his sons being the priest under him, and then that passing down through the Aaronic line in the tribe of Levi and eventually filling the temple with priests. And there's a very specific requirement for who the priests of God's people were. So why is Jesus not a high priest forever according to the order of the tribe of Levi? Why this random figure that we see once in Scripture? Here's why. Because Melchizedek is a very, very, very special guy. He's a very, very special priest. Within the people of God, within Israel, there were three offices that were held. Prophet, priest, and king. There was always a prophet, always a priest, and always a king, right? There was the prophet who was the mouthpiece of God declaring the word of God and declaring the, pro- the plan and promise of God to God's people. There was the, pro- the high priest who was the one who would stand between God and the people and would make sacrifices on their behalf. Specifically, the high priest who would go in once a year and make uh, on the day of atonement and make the atoning sacrifice to cover the sins of the people for that year. And then there was the king who was God's representation on earth. It it was the embodied representation of God. He was chosen by God, anointed by God, put in place by God to be God's representative to the people and God's example to the people. As the people of God today, we no longer have a prophet, priest, or king because we don't need them. And here's why. Because of Melchizedek. See, Jesus is not a priest in the order of Levi. He's not like the Levitical priests. He's like Melchizedek. Here's the cool thing about Melchizedek. Remember what I told you we know about Melchizedek? He was two things. He was the king of Salem, and he was the high priest of God Almighty. He was a priest and a king. That's the kind of high priest that we have in Christ, in the order of Melchizedek. In fact, Melchizedek's very name means, comes from two Hebrew words, Melech and Sadek, which literally means king of righteousness. And he is also the king of Salem. The word Salem in Hebrew means peace. He was the Melech Salam, the king of Salem. 
the king of righteousness and the high priest of God. And this is the type of high priest that we have in Christ. This is why I get excited about talking about the order of Melchizedek because Jesus is like no one else. Because while Melchizedek may have had two of those roles, Christ holds all three. Christ comes, right? And he says, who's even, there is no greater prophet than John the Baptist. And John the Baptist says, except you. Right? John was a human mouthpiece for God. Christ was God incarnate speaking for himself. We look at the high priest who would go into the Holy of Holies. In the temple, there was a, a big curtain that closed off. It was about three feet thick that closed off the most inner part of the Holy of Holies. And it's where the very presence of God was. And so once a year, the high priest would put on his special outfit and would go in there and would offer the Day of Atonement sacrifice to pay for the sins of the people for that year. And when Jesus is hanging on the cross, making his atoning sacrifice... You know what happens to that curtain in the temple? From top to the bottom, it is torn in half, symbolizing that it is no longer needed because no one ever needs to go in there again to make an atoning sacrifice because sin is now paid for once and for all through the accomplished and finished work and atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross for his people. There's no need for another high priest. There's no need for anyone else to ever take up that office and fulfill that task because Christ has made the sacrifice once and for all. Amen. And there's no need for a king because God no longer needs a human representative because he himself has taken on flesh and dwelt among us. Emmanuel, God with us, our King and our Lord. And one day, one day, church, our hope that now anchors our soul through the struggles of life will no longer be hope, and it will become reality when we stand in the presence of our King all eternity, unencumbered by the waves of this life, fully realizing the finished and accomplished work that Christ proclaimed, did, and now sits on his throne in victory because of. We have an eternal hope. We have a hope that will never perish, never fade, that is kept in heaven for us where moth cannot destroy and thief cannot steal as we look forward to the day that Christ will return and the veil of sin and the brokenness of this world will be undone and our hope will become reality. So churches as we sojourn through this life together, let us cling to the hope that is ours in Christ. No matter what you are facing, you have a king who has gone to battle and won victory over it for you. And one day, you will experience that victory in his presence for 
ever. Let's pray together.